You've got questions and we've got answers. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This is David Hansen. David, we've got a sort of special show today. We're going we're gonna to break from the normal format. Uh, we've got an email address. It's WTMI at fool.com. We get lots of emails coming in from readers. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we actually we also have questions that come into the Motley Fool Facebook page, the main Facebook page, that pertain to the financial sector. So today, we're going to focus on answering some of those questions uh, to clear out a backlog, I guess, is, Let's do it. for lack of a better way of putting it. Uh, before we start, do you have anything funnier, interesting to share? I, 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 I don't have anything. Who is your pick to win this season of The Bachelor? I know you've been watching. <laughs> You're a big big, Juan Pablo fan. I can see big, it in your eyes. What, what's his name? Juan Pablo. Juan Pablo. Okay. Well, I think with a name like that. Who else? Everybody's win? a winner. Everybody's a winner with a name like that. <laughs> On that note, let's get to the questions. First question comes from Hal in Austin. The question is, I've read a lot about how younger investors should have more risk in their portfolio because they can sustain greater volatility. Do you recommend a young investor who doesn't want to stock pick invest in a leveraged ETF such as SSO when they are first starting out potentially to get a head start and then slowly roll that into a regular index fund such as SPY as they get older? So first of all, thanks for the question, Hal. My first thought on that is, or my first reaction to that is that it is general advice that younger people can take more risks with their investments than older people. Right. However, I think it's important to note that just because a younger person can take more risk with their portfolio doesn't mean that they have to. At the end of the day, it's really important for somebody to know themselves, uh, know themselves, know thyself. How do you say? Either way. Either way, <laughs> know yourself and how you're going to react to when things do not go your way. Because mm-hmm. the worst thing you can do, uh, taking risk or not taking risk, is to invest in something you don't understand, investing in something you're not comfortable with, and then ending up buying and selling at the wrong times. And then it doesn't matter what you're buying and selling, whether it's the most brilliant thing in the world, if you're buying and selling at the wrong times, if you're, if you're panicking when everybody else is or you're buying when everybody else is euphoric, mm-hmm. that's going to screw you all up right from the get-go. It is, and the ETF that he mentions, SSO, that is ProShares Ultra. Put that Ultra. Ultra. Ultra S and P five hundred, and it aims to give two times the daily return of the S and P. So if the S and P goes up one percent, this ETF will go up two percent, which sounds great, and I can see why he's thinking a young investor can handle that. But on the downside, if the S and P goes down one percent, this goes down two percent, and when these uh, leveraged ETFs try to mimic these daily volatilities. It can get a little bit hairy. Yes, they try to, and not, it's not always exactly right because there's underlying contracts. It's more than just being, okay, we're going to get two times the S&P. There's a little bit more that's going on behind the scenes. So while you can be, have more upside, you're also hit harder on the downside. So if you think back to 2008, when the S&P went down 35%, this went down 70%. So it's a lot harder to climb back up into, into positive territory. It's an interesting idea to try to roll it into a normal one. Maybe not something that I would get too excited about just because of trying to mimic the daily moves. I think it's a little dangerous. And you have to consider with um, these leverage ETFs, the expenses are higher. Mm -hmm. So on this one here, uh, it's a 0.9% expense ratio compared to 0.09 for for SPY. So even if these were flat over time Mm -hmm. and moved together you would lose more on the leverage one. So 
I see these. I see these leverage funds largely as a trader's tool because, mm-hmm. as you were pointing out, they're mimicking daily movements, and what these typically end up having is tracking error over time. Because the S and P index isn't about mimicking anything. The S and P index uh, essentially owns, or, or an index fund uh, copying the S and P owns the stocks in the mm-hmm. S and P 500. This is mimicking daily moves. And, and over time, if you can think about, well, it's trying to match every day, but every single day that those individual results are not the same as the results of the collective S&P companies uh, over time. Also, I'll just point out that when people talk about younger people taking more risk with their investments, typically what they're talking about is having more of their portfolio in equities, right. which is riskier than having more, more bonds or more cash and liquidity in your portfolio. Typically, you're not talking about, well, have it all in equities and then also leverage those equities. So I think in terms of a younger person, you know, quote unquote, taking more risk with their portfolio, uh, a a perfectly good option is just to have more of it in equities, in an S&P index fund. And and Mm -hmm. like you point out, wisely point out, a low cost index fund. Yep. All right, let's go on to the second question. You want me to read it? Yeah, go for it. All right. If the Fed tapers should off, we share here on this? All right. Show. If the Fed tapers off QE, which I guess they've started to do or are planning on doing, do you think bonds will be worth getting back into? And that is from Frank. So we usually talk about equities. We talk a little bit about the bond market here. Give us your thoughts. Give Frank your thoughts. Quantitative easing. So what Frank's talking about is over the past uh, how long has it been going on? A year, year and a half, something. Well, QE three. I well, guess if we go back to the inception. It's been. Multiple years. QE3. Uh, buying <clears throat> mortgage bonds to help, keep, uh, to help try to keep uh, mortgage rates lower, uh, keep rates lower in general on the and longer treasuries. end of the – and treasury on the longer end of the yield curve. So the idea is that when the Fed takes its buying power out of the market, uh, the, the prices uh, of, the, uh, of the bonds will fall. And the way bonds work is when the prices fall, the yields rise. So we have very low yields right now. So Frank is wondering – when the Fed comes, uh, pulls out, prices drop, yields go up, does it make more sense to invest in bonds again? And my answer is, sure, maybe eventually. That's probably true. Mm-hmm. Um, what we've seen in past QEs is that when the Fed pulls out, it doesn't necessarily mean that rates are going to rise. Right. So far since the Fed has announced its taper, uh, small taper, um, we, we have seen rates rise. But in the past, we've actually seen the Fed pull out of QE2, QE1, mm-hmm. and rates fall. Right. So it doesn't. That's not a certainty. Uh, the other thing is, is that even after uh, the, the tapers, after they completely pull out of QE3, there's still the the central interest rate that they set, the the uh, federal funds rate, mm-hmm. which is still between zero percent and zero point two five percent. So you th- then you got to think about maybe that coming up. Um, stepping back, though, generally speaking, the question in my mind is, why do you want bonds? Yeah. Do you want them for diversification? Do you want them for income? Do you want them for safety, for liquidity? Uh, so think about why you want them, and, and that can help di- dictate whether right now is a good time to buy them. If you're looking for value, uh, if, if you're thinking, well, I'm looking for the, the asset class that's going to perform the best for me, that, that's got the most value, I personally don't think bonds are where it's at. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want diversification, if you want sit- more safety in your portfolio, you maybe don't wait for QE to happen right. or for QE to be pulled out. Maybe you have some of your, you still have some of your portfolio in bonds right now. I do. Right, and to go back to what you were saying in terms of when the Fed has pulled back in the past, rates have actually come down. I, I think investors and anyone needs to know that 
longer-term rates, the Fed doesn't write down a number and say, okay, long-term rates are 4% now. It's a marketplace with supply and demand, and they are just, they're a player, they're a very big player on that demand equation right now, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're dictating all of the prices. So they, they target certain rates, they, they want to get it to certain levels, but they're not out there saying 30-year treasuries have to yield this much right now. They're just a player in the market. Well, yeah, and, and we think about, there's this... I think a misconception that the Fed is is skewing market prices, and I don't know. Maybe that's true. I don't know. But you got to figure that there are market participants that, as the Fed buys these uh, buys these bond assets, pushes up the price. But then you've got people on the sidelines who are saying, "Well, I would be interested at X price." Mm-hmm. So as the Fed starts to pull out, it's not just all of that disappears. You then have other people slowly coming back in, saying, "Well." I, I think it's a good price here. I think it's a good price here. And a, a, a lot of the bond market is, is predicated on confidence about the U.S. economy, about the global economy. So we've, we've then got to take into account, well, as the Fed pulls out QE3, what's going to be happening in the U.S.? What's going to be happening around the world? Because if people are concerned, get more concerned about the outlook, they often flood to the safest asset class, which has been U.S. Treasuries, uh, potentially mortgage bonds. So... We could go on and on. Yeah, I mean, wrapping it all up, it, there's a lot of question marks around this. So it's it's kind of like trying to play a guessing game here. So I, I say step back, think about why would you want bonds in your portfolio? Personal situation. Exactly. And, and like I said, if it's for value, I, I think bonds right now, not so much. But as, as the uh, Fed pulls out QE3, just keep an eye on it. Mm-hmm. See what happens in the bond market and whether, whether you think all of a sudden now there's more value in the bond market. Yes, sir. All right, third question. We're going to go to Jay Redman. I, I should point out that last question was from the Motley Fool's Facebook page. This mm-hmm. one is as well. This is Jay Redman asking, are credit unions safer than banks to leave savings and investments in? Or like Greece, when this correction hits, will U.S. citizens be limited to only $100 a day in order to curb and control a run on the banks? That would be scary. Yeah. Well, let me, I'll, let you, I'll let you go first, but let me point out right off the top, when we had the financial crisis back in 2008, uh, the FDIC actually expanded the amount of insurance coverage the depositors got in the U.S. from $100,000 per account to $250,000 per account. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to some other places where when, when a crisis hit, uh, there was suddenly all of these curbs on what depositors were getting, uh, the U.S. was in a position to say, we are going to insure even more so the depositors feel even more safe. Correct. And I, I don't want to say that it's impossible for the U.S. to have a, a big panic and a potentially a run on the bank. I mean, anything's possible. But when you look at the FDIC and the protection you have there, I think you have to have pretty good confidence that that would not happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, maybe, but I, I'm not sure what, what he means by when the correction hits. Maybe Jay Redmond knows something. That, oh, the correction. Yeah, that may, does maybe he knows something correction. that he or she knows that's something that we don't. But... Uh, I think a credit union, a bank, they're both they're both safe. You're both, your deposits are, are backed up to a certain point. Most people don't have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in there, so most people are, are going to be covered and be okay. Uh, the other thing that I will say to address your point that anything could happen, yes, anything could happen, and, and that could happen in the U.S. Uh, however, I think about it this way. Every morning when I walk out of my front door, there is the possibility that a car runs up on the sidewalk and hits me. Mm-hmm. But I still get up and I still go out my front door because that probability is low enough. 
Uh, and that's how I would think about something like this. Although th- they do note uh, safe to leave investments in investments. In banks. In, investments is different. Yeah, we, we should say investments are not guaranteed by the FDIC if you have them. SIPC. Bank. Yes. Yeah, there's some backing there. Right. That's not that that doesn't back the value of the investment. Right. But but it, it backs the investments disappearing. Mm-hmm. So, Correct. All right. Got backing there as well. Fourth question. So again, from the Facebook page, the Motley Fool Facebook page. Could you explain how Bitcoins work, even how the back-end system works? And that's from Mary. So a lot of people are probably wondering about Bitcoin. We've talked a little bit about it on, here on the show. And Full disclosure, I'm not a Bitcoin expert. I don't know if you claim to be a Bitcoin expert. but You're we just a troll, a Bitcoin troll. <laughs> we're not a, we are not trolls here. We, we, it's, a, it's a pretty a fan complex boy. A system. Fanboy, that's probably better. Sure. So we can keep it high level. Uh, it's a digital currency at its or, or store value. It's a digital thing out there on the internet. You can't hold a physical Bitcoin. They don't exist. Um, Which is sad. Well, they exist, but not physically. Uh, and it's decentralized. There's no government. There's no central bank that's regulating the currency. You can you can think of people compare it to this. You can think about it kind of like a digital gold. Uh, there's a limited supply out there. Uh, the supply and demand in the market kind of determines what the price is. Uh, so, I don't know, what are your thoughts? How would you explain Bitcoin? I don't think I'm doing a good job. How would I explain how it works is what I would say is that I know what I don't know. And when it comes to Bitcoin, this is very much more a question for a computer programmer mm-hmm. or a mathematician to explain. And, and what I did when I was looking at this uh, question was my first stop was let me go onto YouTube, let me go onto other uh, uh, video sources and look up how Bitcoin works. And, and there are plenty of good videos in, up there that go into detail about things like elliptical curve digital sig- signature algorithm and mathematical trapdoor, which are beyond my scope of expertise. Um, so, so for anybody, including Mary, that want to learn the specifics of how Bitcoin works, that would be my suggestion. And I guess, I guess supposedly she's asking us to be that video, but I'm saying there are videos out there um, that exist um, in terms of the more general of how Bitcoin works and what Bitcoin is, um, it's, it's essentially a, I was going to say a currency or a store of value. It still hasn't been determined which it is. But basically it's a way that you can take some, you have a register of how many Bitcoins you have. A Bitcoin wallet. Securely, a Bitcoin wallet is what mm-hmm. they call it. And based on digital signatures and, 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 and personal signatures, you can transfer that. Um, securely to somebody else anywhere in the world. And it's a distributed system so that it's, um, it's much safer, um, more secure than, than transferring a lot of other different ways. And one of the things that I that I've, I th- has thought has been really interesting that I heard recently, and when we th- talk about whether Bitcoin is a currency or a store of value or a commodity or whatever, I heard somebody mention... Well, what Bitcoin could end up being is simply a way to transfer value. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't have to be a currency in and of itself. It could be a way that, so me here on this end, I can say, well, I want to transfer $10 to David, um, which I won't actually do. But Good. I could change that to Bitcoin and send that securely to you, mm-hmm. do, do that secure transaction, and then you convert it back to usable dollar currency on the other end. So then it doesn't really matter what the value of Bitcoin is on either end here. It's just 
being used to make that transfer. And the, the computer programming, the, the mathematical background of the Bitcoin system is very useful for that. So, so that's one thing to think about uh, when it comes to Bitcoin. It doesn't necessarily have to end up being a currency or a store of value. It could be a way of transferring value. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You don't, the behind the scenes stuff is over my head, but the actual practicality of it is, it makes sense. It's pretty much like an online banking thing, just like you said. People go online and transfer money from bank accounts. Sometimes there's fees involved. If you want to transfer that to another country, there's potentially a lot more fees involved. This would be a way potentially do it cheaper. But the value or the, the price of it is fluctuating a lot, so that scares a lot of people. So after all of that, the bottom line answer to Mary's question is we do not know, but there are other people that do. Yeah. And it exists out there on the YouTubes, and, uh, and that's easily found. Uh, moving on to the next question. This is our final question, right? Final okay. question. Second to last. Second to last. Yeah. Okay. Second to last question. Uh, This is from... Who is this from? Do you have a name? Jarrett. Jarrett. You visit a desert... I like this one. You visit a deserted island, think Castaway, and on the island, there are four bank stocks, whichever ones you want. There are four seats on your boat and a sizable rope on board your vessel. Considering the journey will be at least seven years long, one seat is for yourself, one is for Wilson... He takes preference over the bank stocks. I think that makes sense. And the other two are for two bank stocks. Choose two to travel with you, the ones you feel most comfortable with. It's a long journey, after all. Choose one to be dragged at a distance so you can observe how strong it is. And choose one to leave on the island. Uh, David, I I think for ease uh, of grouping which stocks we're talking about, let's just go for the big four. Since the question specifies four, there are four Big bank stocks. So we got Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and Citigroup. What's your what's your breakdown of who's coming with you? Who's getting I guess dragged right. along? Coming with me in the boat next to, to Wilson and I, Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan. They've been through some rough times and they've come out stronger for it. Um, maybe not J.P. Morgan recently in terms of some legal stuff, but coming through the financial crisis. That's, those were some rocky seas, so I feel comfortable with those institutions being good underwriters of loans, good risk managers, and also I think the valuations are pretty reasonable on those, so I feel very comfortable getting in the boat with Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan. Well, I was just talking about this on, on another full podcast, Market Foolery, that Citigroup, what's interesting is if we, we go back the past decade, decade plus, Citigroup's been run by an empire builder. It's been run by a lawyer. Mm-hmm. It's been run by a, a hedge fund manager. And now it's being run by a banker, which is really interesting. Mike Corbett is actually a banker. He's been with Citigroup since 1983. It's been, his, as far as I know, his only job uh, at Citigroup. So I like Citigroup. Citigroup's definitely coming with me on the boat, uh, particularly with that stock right around tangible book value right now. Um, but it gets tough for me from there. So... Uh, I have on my paper here J.P. Morgan uh, to, to have on the boat with me, but I don't know. I may prefer to have Wells Fargo. J.P. Morgan's uh, – I, I like the businesses at J.P. Morgan, but I think I just trust Wells Fargo and the culture there over a longer period of time. Seven years. So, yeah, I think I'm going to take Wells Fargo with me. I'm going to drag J.P. Morgan along to see how they continue to do. Bank of America is getting left behind. That was the same same as you, right? No. Oh, Who's I'm dragging Bank of America. You're, dra- you're leaving Citigroup behind? Leaving Citigroup behind. That's crazy. It says, so you can observe how strong it is. And we saw Bank of America report earnings this morning, and we'll talk about that on, on the show tomorrow. But earnings looked good. It's starting to turn around. But I'm not 
totally convinced that they can produce double-digit returns on equity over time. So over a seven-year period, dragging them, I think I would get a pretty good idea if they're for real or not. I don't hate Bank of America. I actually own it myself, but I'd prefer the other three. All right. I'm leaving Citigroup on the island. Seven years. Uh, they're a global bank. A lot can happen. You can say that's a good diversification there in terms of the risks. But for me, I'm leaving them on the, on the beach. So, if, again, if uh, WTMIers, if, if listeners want to ask us a question, WTMI at fool.com, send the question over. And you said we've got one more. I think this is from our Twitter, right? Right. We it's wanted to give TMF Twitter some credits. Yep. This is from Paul. He is at FAM, P-H-A-M. He says... What do you guys think of what do you guys think about XLF for a new position in the big banks? So XLF is the ETF we talked about an ETF earlier in the show that focuses on bigger financials. The biggest top five holdings are the big four U.S. banks and Berkshire Hathaway. What do you think about this? Sure. Good idea. Sure. I think it's potentially a good idea. <laughs> the I mean, in, in the la- in the last question. Sorry, I didn't mean to to cut you off after giving a stupid short answer there. Uh, as, as in the last question of the big four banks, um, I think there's there's a lot of attractive uh, a lot of reasons to like all four of them mm-hmm. potentially over the coming years. So going with an ETF that essentially captures all of them, I don't think that's a bad idea. I don't think it's a bad idea. The expenses are pretty low, 0.18 percent annual expense ratio. There that is low. Um, I would say potentially a good idea if you're if you're a new investor and you're trying to learn more about banks. I would say maybe buy one or two so you can follow those banks, learn the business. Because if you buy an ETF, you might want to just say, "Ah, I've got the ETF. I don't need to worry about the individual businesses. I don't need to get on the conference calls. They'll take care of themselves. So if you're a beginning investor, interested in the financial sector, maybe want to get some in your portfolio, rather than just going the ETF route, maybe, maybe pick one or two that you're really interested in, learn more about, take some tracking positions. So I'd maybe go that route. All right. Well, we've gotten in the habit of asking a question of the day, mm-hmm. and WTMIers can go on at TMF Financials or our Facebook page, Motley Fool Financial Sector, to answer it. So here's my question. I'm stealing this from Market Foolery, but looking ahead to 2014, what, we'll say one, what one company would you most like to see go public? Oh, you're putting me on the spot? I am putting you on the spot. You answer first. We talked about this. Okay. You answer first, and I'll think about it. I will say, I'm going to go with Uber. Uber, the private car service, um, I'm torn as to whether I would jump on it to invest in it, but I would be interested to, to look under the hood. Uh, wah, wah, wah. Uh, look under the hood of Uber, see how that business is doing, um, and potentially be an investor in it. It is a, uh, a mold breaker mm-hmm. in, terms of, uh, in terms of a company offering uh, transportation service. Well, I'm going to piggyback off of that. You're going to go with Lyft. Oh, you're going to say Lyft? That's, Come that's on. an easy answer. Boo. The competitor to Uber, and I just want to beat you, so maybe, maybe <laughs> Lyft will be better. Maybe it will. All right, well, that's the show for today, right? Mm-hmm. You got anything else? You got I anything else burning? I have zero things burning. Zero things. Well, that's probably good. Yes. Uh, I'm Matt Kovenheffer. This here is David Hansen. We will see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.